This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 270, A Conversation with Dan Jorgens. Welcome to Comic Shenanigans. This is episode 270. It's our conversation with Dan Jurgens. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. We'll get into the episode in just a moment. I wanted to take a moment to uh, thank some of the... Um, the contributors to the questions that we asked Mr. Jurgens for this uh, this interview today. Um, so on the Marvel Masterworks forum, uh, we had some people submit some questions, including some of the following people: uh, poster by the name of SRCA nineteen forty one, as well as Shotzi. Um, who else we got in here? Uh, a lot of questions from those two, actually, which, which we did use. Uh, Century 459, and there might have been a few others. I think uh, Jeff Dyer, Shagmu, we used a variation of your question. Uh, and I think that's everyone who had questions um, incorporated into the interview. It's a fun interview. Um, it's just over half an hour. Um, we got to cover a lot of different topics throughout Dan's you know, amazing career, uh, talking about some Superman, some Zero Hour, uh, some Thor, some Cap. Um, a bunch of stuff. The only thing I guess we didn't really get to end up having a chance to talk about, this is partially my fault, is the New 52 Futures End as well as Convergence. We lightly touched on those. We did talk about Aquaman and the others. So um, if those sound like good things you want to listen to, uh, please enjoy our episode. Um, again, we thank Dan for his time, taking time out of his busy schedule to um, to talk with us and to answer some burning questions. And in one poster's uh, question, a question they would had or had been wondering about for over 22 years. So glad we finally got to address some of these questions. Uh, so without further ado, uh, we're going to turn it over to myself talking with Dan Jurgens. You can email us at Comic comic shenanigans at gmail.com like us on facebook rate and review us on itunes subscribe to us on itunes and also post in our hd realms thread as well when that goes up as well you can also find us on stitcher as uh that's a recent adjustment or uh, enhancement i should say in terms of being able to find us on the web and listen to episodes so without further ado finally let's introduce dan to the show dan welcome to comic shenanigans how you doing today very good. How about you, Adam? I'm doing well. Thank you for uh, gracing uh, gracing our podcast with uh, your talent. My pleasure. That's called greasing the wheels a little. We see what we can do. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thanks for joining us today. Um, we actually have a, a fair bit of questions uh, from the uh, Marvel Masterworks board. It has a, a lot of questions uh, that they wanted to ask you. So we'll try to do um, a little bit of kind of you, you as your history of, as a creator, and we'll kind of try and streamroll through it. Uh, okay. You, I mean, uh, you've you've had a long career, so that's a you got a lot to talk about. Yeah, uh, <laughs> we can always hit the high points or the low points, depending on how you want to handle it. <laughs> well, actually, that's a good question. What would you consider your low point? Let's let's go for the jugular. Oh, going for the jugular low point. Uh, I don't know. Probably the thing that I would regret most is that uh, in the mid '90s, right around '95, '96. Went to Marvel and we launched Sensational Spider-Man, and it was one of those things where everybody had the best of intentions. It just didn't work out like any of us wanted it to. Uh, you know, they were in the middle of the clone story at the time, trying to build that. Uh, you know, it was. I I wish the timing had been different. Let's just put it that way. Okay, what was it like writing Ben Riley instead of Peter Parker? Did you approach it differently? Not really, because what they really wanted to do was to have Ben Riley be Peter Parker. I mean, they wanted Peter Parker unattached, unmarried, 
uh, footloose, fancy free, and single again. And for all intents and purposes, the idea was Ben Riley was Peter Parker. So I, I simply sort of approached it that way. Um, obviously, as things turned out many years later, that was something Marvel continued to have interest in doing somehow, which is, you know, the idea of unmarrying um, Peter and Mary Jane. So, you know, I certainly tried to approach it as though he was Peter Parker and tried to structure it that way. But at the same time, that's hard to do when there is a Peter Parker on the scene. Yeah. I guess that brings up a question is that if you were, I mean, you did get to write a little bit of Peter in your Thor run, but if you were doing like, a, you know, doing an amazing Spider-Man these days, for example, do you personally prefer him to be married or to be single? Oh, I think um, for me, uh, probably, probably single. I think there is something about Peter Parker to me that says, you know, he should never have a certain level of success that that for Peter Parker, probably more than any other hero, uh, Peter Parker is an individual who pays a price, an ongoing price, to be Spider-Man, and that's what makes him a hero. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I guess I would agree. I definitely agree with that part. The whole idea of the Parker luck kind of speaks to that, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, and but a lot of that isn't luck. A lot of it was... You know, this is what happens to Peter Parker because he's off being Spider-Man. He's saving the world from the Green Goblin or the Wizard or whomever or Doc Ock. And at the same time, Aunt May is at home collapsing on the floor because Peter didn't get to her with her medicine in time. And he, I think, functions best when there's that conflict of I can't do what I'm supposed to do as an individual, as Peter Parker, because I'm having to take care of the world. So I, I just think there's a neat dynamic to that. Uh, what would you say is, I guess, the high point of your career? We mentioned the, the sad low light. Oh, there have been a lot. And and that's where, fortunately, um, you know, there are more. <laughs> uh, certainly, there's Death of Superman. There is, uh, when I first... Um, was able to write and draw, create, write and draw Booster Gold. There's a long run on Thor. There's Zero Hour, Justice League, uh, a couple of stints on Green Arrow. I mean, there have been a lot. Interesting question, actually, I guess, about uh, Death of Superman. When you guys were doing it, did you feel like you'd still be talking about it 20 years later? No. No? No, there, there's, I, I don't think there's any way, um, well, not when we first conceived of it, I suppose later, when it became such a big story, I could have, if I really sat down to think about it, said, yeah, okay, you know, 20 years later, we're still going to talk about this. But, you know, you don't think that way. And as a creator, you're really thinking about, in many ways, just trying to get the books out on time. And because nothing like that had ever really happened in comics before, there was nothing that I could have been able to compare it to. So... <clears throat> If someone had said, gee, Dan, do you think anyone will be talking about this in 20 years? I would have said, well, you know, how many stories are we talking about now that happened 20 years previously? So, you know, I might have been able to go down that road, but probably wouldn't have. Interesting. Uh, a question about Superman 75 as part of the death of Superman, obviously. What, whose idea was it to use full page panels for that issue? Oh, uh, that was something we came up with as a group, which is when we were all in the meeting and we had the creative teams from all the books there, <clears throat> we started talking about how could we build tension and drama? How could we build 
that sense of a story that is coming to a bigger and bigger end. So what we decided to do, and I, I really don't remember, you know, who necessarily suggested it or how exactly uh, we put that concept in place, but it was, let's start the, the, you know, four issues earlier going four panels a page. Then the next issue is three panels a page. The issue after that is two. And then finally we end with splash pages as a sense of just picking up the pace. Or what I always talk about is in cinematic terms, we were just making the soundtrack build and getting it louder and louder and pushing it to a crescendo. How did it end up that you got to actually do the actual death itself? Was it like picking straws or how did that happen? No, some of it was um, because we were looking for something to put into Superman 75. Anyway, um, I know this is where some of us disagree a bit, but I'd walk in and I had two ideas written on a pad of legal paper and one was Death of Superman and the other one was Monster Big Fight. <laughs> and <laughs> I never saw them as being the same thing. Ultimately, uh, the monster became Doomsday and that became the instrument of the death of Superman. So it's just kind of how the story conference went and how the planning cycle went. And as I said, this idea of having something special happen in Superman 75. This is a kind of an odd question, but is there anything in Superman 75, because obviously it is very well remembered, that you would have liked to have gone back and changed either in the writing or the, or the illustrating? Writing? No, I don't think so. Um, I think in a perfect world, had I had, it might have been nice to have a little bit more time to draw it. I think I could have brought, uh, maybe improved a couple of the pages, but it's nothing I ever lost sleep over. I was always very satisfied with the way it came off. And there have been times when, as a creator, you let a book go out and you really, really wish you could rebuild pages eight and nine, for example. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing like that with this, nothing at all. In, uh, in Superman 80, you, you were, I guess, were responsible for the death of Coast City. Um, how did that kind of come about? Because obviously that would end up having a big trickle effect in the DC universe. Uh, originally, I wanted to do it with uh, Central City. And the Flash guys said no. So after they you know, said no to our request, we said, well, what about Coast City? And at that point, we thought it was a good way to do something uh, to kind of goose hell Jordan a little bit and and probably do something with him in terms of motivation. And ultimately, that boulder got pushed down the road until you saw everything that happened with the with the entire Green Lantern Corps, Hal becoming Parallax, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, that was, you know, that was absolutely um, crucial to the story in order to, I mean, often what you have are a lot of bad guys who don't really do anything evil. I mean, one of the things I see on TV now, uh, despite all the comic book shows, is I never see anyone as a bad guy who is particularly evil or does anything particularly bad. <laughs> so what we wanted was to be able to, to start to build the whole engine city idea, turning Earth into a kind of a war world and just getting rid of cities and everything. And that's what certainly elevated uh, Cyborg Superman to the evil status that he enjoyed. Which of the four replacement Superman was your favorite to draw? Well, probably... I mean, I, I, I really liked the look that Cyborg Superman had, but certainly there were many times uh, after I had designed him 
when I was drawing him and thought, oh, my God, why did I make this guy so complicated? <laughs> <laughs> I, I always loved what Bog, uh, John Bogdanov came up with with steel. That was fun to draw just because, you know, kind of the cables on the legs and that that sheen to him with that big sort of John cape and everything. Um, and Superboy was filled with attitude. I, I don't know that I had a favorite. They were all fun. Now, the next question is actually from the uh, the message boards and uh, uh, listener SRCA1941 was asking, did you ever have plans for Sasha Green beyond her appearance in the Superman Annual 55? He's been wondering about this for the last 22 years. We toyed around with it. Often what you, what you end up doing as a writer is introducing a character and you just say, if there's another opportunity here, where it works out, I'll do something with it. And that was one such possibility. The, the best example was probably Hank Henshaw. When I first introduced him, I always thought, well, maybe there's something down the road. I really like what I had there, so I brought him back in Adventures of Superman a couple of issues later, and then that set us up for the Cyborg Superman thing after that. Um, there have been any, a number store, any number of stories that I have put into play with the idea that maybe a character here or there would move on and be seen again. And sometimes for whatever reason, it just doesn't work out. Hmm. Speaking of, I guess, older characters, what do you think happened to Trixie Collins after the end of Booster Gold? (laughs) I think she went on and had a very successful life. Trixie (laughs) to me was always perhaps the, um, the most balanced character in the book, which is one of the reasons I liked her a great deal. And I have always thought that out of anybody at that time, Trixie went on and did just fine and, you know, probably ended up married with a couple of wonderful kids, et cetera, et cetera. What about Dirk Davis? Dirk Davis, having been a manhunter, probably never really recovered from all that. Did you ever think of using him again? I did. Uh, there was actually a point where, uh, when I was doing Booster Gold Volume 2, um, and we were building to the 50th issue, we were going to resolve a couple of the storylines there, most notably, who is the Black Beetle. Hmm. And as part of that, I was going to, since it was the 50th issue, I was going to have some fun and bring both Dirk and Trixie back into the book. Um, but obviously, we never quite got there. We ended at 48. That's, that's a shame. Yes, it is. <laughs> Two issues short. Yeah. Um, how did you get involved? This is another question from the boards. How did you get involved in taking over uh, Justice League of America from Given and DeMatteis, and how much control did you have over the team's makeup? Um, at that time, it was interesting. Um, Marvel had actually offered me the Avengers, and I was giving it very serious consideration. And... Uh, And coincidentally, around that exact same time, and I was, you know, I had this idea in my head of maybe doing a premiere super book of sorts. Um, You know, Keith and Mark were wrapping it up on Justice League. And DC said, well, do you have any ideas for Justice League? What would you do? And I said, well, I can't do it. I can't can't do the goofy, you know, Koala Walla Buoy Island or whatever it was type stuff. Said, I'm not going to go there. But if you want to do something a little more straight and rebuild the team um let's try that so they started to look at splitting it up into jla and jle uh some of the cast and the split up was decided on at that point but for me as long as i had superman booster and blue beetle i was going to be happy so 
that's sort of how things got divvied up, and that's how we ended, how I ended up rolling from one project into that one. Okay. Um, I, this is I'm throwing it to the boards a lot this time. Uh, how did the Electro Superman storyline come about? Was it fully planned from beginning to end, or did it start with the concept and the ending was figured out later? It, it's a, it's all of the above. Uh, the Superman Red, Superman Blue concept is something we had discussed a couple of times before, and and we just would throw out in I in meetings sometimes as we were planning stories. Superman Red, Superman Blue, and. Um, at this point, you know, we, and I think, as I recall, uh, Glenn Whitmore, who is the colorist of the book, said, I really think it's time for Superman Red, Superman Blue, or something to that effect. <laughs> and we started talking about it. And I think we had already started to hone in on this idea of giving Superman different powers and a different look. And it just sort of built upon that. When we first started, no, I don't think we had everything worked out in terms of the end. And how it would reconcile itself. We had some general idea of where it was going to go, but I don't think we had all the uh, the exact details figured out. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I've always wondered that myself. Uh, how did you break down the Zero Hour crossover, or I guess the main series, I should say? Oh man, on uh, that one, I mean, it was it was to, to backtrack on that a little bit. Um, the the idea of doing a crossover like that. And resetting some things is something I had been talking to DC about for a couple of months. And it just so happened that Casey Carlson, who was an editor on staff at that time, was having some of the same thoughts. So Mike Carlin said, why don't you guys get together and talk about this? And we started to do so. And DC got very interested. And at one point, I sat down with Mike and Archie Goodwin and Denny O'Neill and we started to lay out how this could work. And a big part of it was the zero issues that, you know, you could in one issue get uh, more people than usual to step in and buy it. You could explain to the prospective audience everything about your characters, who they are, why they do what they do, what their motivation is, etc. And just, you know, step off on a right foot that way. Um, the surprise to me was as we first started to talk about something like Zero Hour, and I think this came from marketing. I'm not 100% sure. But they said, hey, why don't you do it weekly? <laughs> and I, I just sort of said, are you out of your minds? But I think that was driven somewhat by the idea that Crisis went 12 issues. And sustaining that, that sense of momentum for an entire year is really tough. So they said, what about five issues? Every week, you can come out that way and we can really – deliver the story in a concentrated uh, sort of burst that way and it nearly killed me but it worked out great and actually that brings out the other question did Zero Hour turn out the way you expected it to for the most part it did um, there were some things I would have liked to have done that I was unable to do but that always happens I mean that is the nature of a beast in a company wide crossover because there are always a lot of uh compromises along the way that you that you have to do to make it all work um at the same time i look back on it and i think it still holds together well i was really happy to have a, an incredible creative team um jerry ordway's inks on it are fantastic greg wright's colors are gorgeous uh and it was done by us you know every single page and in this world now of comics I don't think that could possibly happen anymore. Now any crossover seems to be 
a bunch of different people working on it. Um, this issue is one guy, that issue is another guy, and I'm tremendously proud of the fact that whether it was Zero Hour or many other things, that if you get that, those issues, is it's me, and it's, it's the same creative team throughout. And I think in this day and age, that is something we as an industry have really undervalued. Hmm. I, I, as a reader, I think I agree with that because I, I do miss the consistency of having just a one creative team doing something, especially on an event book where they're more and more focused, it, it feels like, on just getting it out but not caring about the artistic consistency as much, I should say. Right. Well, yeah, and I think by and large, artists have been undervalued in the industry the past 15 years or so anyway, and I think mm-hmm. that's just another example of that. A question actually you kind of dovetailing on what you mentioned about the, the inks and that. Uh, who do you think is one of your, like, who are your favorite inkers over your pencils? It depends on the project. I mean, I've been, I work with good people. Um, for the past bunch of years, I've worked a lot with Norm Ratman, and he's fantastic. Uh, of course, he had Brett Breeding on Superman, who helped give that a very particular look, and Jerry on Zero Hour. Kevin Nolan on Superman Aliens. Uh, Bob Layton inked a lot of my Marvel stuff. I mean, I think what we have done is often try and find the right guy for the right job. You come up with the look you want the book to have and then find someone to fit the bill. And as I said, I've, I've worked with some really talented guys who have in each way made that project their own. Hmm. What were your, uh, your goals when you took on Thor? Just to tell good stories. I mean, uh, Marvel had actually offered me Thor a couple of years earlier and I turned it down. What was really interesting to me about it at this point was, um, you know, you'd had a few of the Marvel books were went to image to be done by Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee. And so when those books came back, Avengers, Fantastic Four, Iron Man, etc., it was called Heroes Return, I believe it was. Yeah. And uh you know, the, the Thor had been gone from Marvel for a couple of years, so the chance to start over again, to, to start fresh, if you will, is always very, very enticing. Um, they already had uh, J.R. Jr., John Romita Jr., lined up to draw it. I'd always wanted to work with John. So, I, I mean, everything was in place to make that work out, and all I wanted to do was get back to telling bigger-than-life Thor stories, that if Thor is a god as he says, then his stories to me should be godlike and it should be bigger than life and have a sense of scope to them. And that's what we shot for. And I think that's what we delivered. Did you always have a long-term goal in mind for the Jake Olson character? To a certain extent, I always knew that I wanted to use Jake for um, a good chunk of years and then eventually get back to Don Blake. And that was going to be the plan if I had stayed on the book, uh, was to bring back Don Blake. And basically Thor, in essence, had to atone for his sins. And everything I wrote up along those lines was going to be built around Don Blake being that particular vehicle. Okay. Um, where was, I, I guess, where was your inspiration for the Jake Olsen character in terms of like his profession? Like It uh, definitely added a, a familiar flavor, but still a new one. I want. I think um, one of the things that writers have always wrestled with in comics is if they give a hero sort of a civilian identity, do you want to give him a job that gets him into the story somehow? And I picked an EMT because I thought 
that would be a good vehicle by which I could get Thor into action in a hurry. That if it's if it's Jake Olson driving downtown to take care of a bomb blast in New York City or something like that, it would get Thor on the scene right away. And I found that really useful. So that's that's where the whole idea of Jake Olson came from. Uh, moving along in your Thor run, um, a very well-remembered aspect was the whole Lord of Asgard concept. What was kind of your inspiration in changing the way that Thor was kind of viewed on Earth and having him as a reigning deity for like two years? It was actually an idea that I had always been flirting with. And um, originally, uh, and Tom Brevoort was the editor at the time, and he and I talked about it. We conceived of it as a standalone graphic novel sort of idea. And it would be, you know, here's a 64-page graphic novel in which we can tell this story. And this is what Thor ascends to. Um, And we had a particular artist in mind who ended up being unable to do that. So then we just said, well, you know what? What if we were to just put it in the monthly book? And so when I started to do that, obviously it became a longer form story and something I could investigate um, in a way that I couldn't have done it in just a 64-page graphic novel. And to me, it all seemed somewhat logical. I mean, right from the start, I was playing around with the idea of here's a guy walking on Earth who says he is a god. Well, how do people react to that? How does that manifest itself? Who signs on and says yes? Who says no? How does this really work? And that is something I started playing around with in issue one, and it seemed a natural place to take the character. What were some of your favorite moments from that Thor run? Oh, I think um, a lot of them, I think back to it, and I, I was very fortunate to work with some fantastic artists. And whenever I got pages back from JR, I mean, it was just like such a treat because he is, JR is perhaps the finest storyteller in comics today. And he, he can get into the essence of a story and the action as well as the quiet moments for the characters and knock it out of the park almost every single time. So for me, just working with someone who is so damn good um, was a lot of fun. And that made me work better. I always thought that the visual where we came up, uh, um, where Thor breaks his hammer, kind of made a new statement about the book and the character in a way, and I think that was a big moment. Mm -hmm. Um, When Andy Kubert came on after John, it was to me much like John Buscema uh, coming on after Jack Kirby, that you went from this bigger-than-life artist to someone whose figures were a little more pliable and a little more human. So I thought we sort of replicated that sequence a little bit. But as much as anything, I just look at it and say, you know, it's what 70 plus issues and yeah i think it still holds together pretty well were you satisfied with the end of your run for the most part um i ha- i did have another chapter in me that as i said would have sort of restored thor a little bit because we did look at it and say you know we have to fix some stuff and it would have been nice to have been able to do that because I think I had some pretty good ideas for that. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. But that doesn't change how I feel about the issues that actually got out there now. Oh, true. Um, what was it like writing Captain America? Captain America was always a tough one. Uh, part of it is because I came in sort of in the middle of things. And um, Mark Wade had been the writer, and he had already set a couple of things in motion that I tried to pick up on and make sense out of, and I didn't quite know 
you know, what to do with those. Uh, I tried to make them make sense and be relevant. But I think cap is something um, that I probably struggled with finding my voice on a little bit. And some of it was, you know, I kind of saw him as a man out of time. Um, I saw him as someone who missed the old neighborhood, who missed the people we knew, who still wanted to listen to that music that he had been exposed to as a youth and that kind of thing. And I'm not sure that's necessarily what everybody wanted to read. Hmm. How did you approach uh, Protocide as a character, and how did you con- conceive the concept? concept came about because I think it's often useful to have characters who are tied to a hero's origin somehow. I think that's often useful. Uh, in this case, it was one of those things where I kept looking for a way, how do you build off Steve Rogers' origin to be something decent that way. Hmm. So that's, or Captain America's origin. And that's what I tried to do, was just find something that was going to work well. Uh, question about Booster Gold. What was it, was it kind of weird to come back and create a new Booster Gold series 20 years after the original? Oh, I don't know that I would say it was weird. It was a lot of fun to be able to get back to the character. I had always liked the character. I actually loved doing the character. had a lot of fun with it and had often said that one of the problems is when Booster Gold first appeared, I had only written, you know, a handful of comic books. I hadn't done a lot of writing. And if you read those issues, you can see examples of someone sort of learning on the fly. And to go back to it, uh, it was fun to kind of get back there. I thought Jeff Johns had a very unique take on it. He certainly knew what he wanted to do with it. And I think it was very nice that we could get to that point where we could do it again. Do you like the change that the character's undergone in the last decade? Um, I don't know that the changes are that significant. That if, if you want to look at it and say yeah, it's Booster Gold... Uh, and they, they play up the time travel angle of it a little more. If you go back to Volume 1, you know, I did a lot with time travel. I was the first one, I think, who had brought Rip Hunter back into the sort of ongoing DCU in quite some time, and I had him show up in a lot of the books. Uh, pushing him as far as a time cop of sorts was probably a little different, but not, you know, out of line with what I had been doing in Volume 1. Hmm. Uh, I know we're, we're wrapping up in just a minute. Um, when you were writing Superman in the New 52, how did you approach him maybe differently than you would have 20 years ago in the, the old DC universe? I, I tried, well, for one thing, he was younger, and obviously he was no longer married uh, to Lois. And, and those were the big things. I think beyond that, you know, I was only on the book for such a short time that. I, I don't know that it's really even, um, you know, that appropriate to get into it because we, Keith and I came on at sort of a bad time for the book. Uh, George was just wrapping up and, and things had not gone well for him. Uh, we came on, things did not go well for us. And I don't know, I, I certainly can't say that I ever felt as though I was writing even that version of Superman in a way that I felt was necessarily right. Would you want to write Superman again? 
it's always fun to work with Superman. And if you look at the two convergence issues, I just did. That's true. <laughs> uh, you know, I, that was a great experience to get back to doing that. But I think in order to work on Superman again, it would have to be, and this is true of any character. It's not just true of Superman. You know, the publisher, editor, and creator have to have a unified vision. And I don't know that we would have that. So, uh, you know, I love drawing Superman. I love writing Superman. But that doesn't mean it's always something that is easy to make happen, nor should it happen. Hmm. How did you come to write Aquaman and the others? I mean, I was a big fan of that book. I thought it was really fun. Um, but what kind of went, how did you end up kind of writing that book? Uh, you know, we were, <laughs> I was sitting in the offices one day and Dan was talking about various projects and things like that. And he said, what do you know about Aquaman and the others? And I said, well, I read it. I liked them. You know, they had been introduced by, uh, Jeff Johns earlier in his run on Aquaman. And he said, well, what would you do with it? And I just started to talk a little bit and like so many things, in comics um, one conversation leads to another leads to another and the next thing you know you're doing the book and what I found compelling about those characters was their background mix and and this idea that they came from very different places it was a very diverse cast that was modeled on archetypes in a lot of ways you know you had your rocket man you had your jungle girl and you know you could go down you had your uh you know, futurist, and you could just, you could pick the archetype that each of these people were drawn from, and that to me was tremendously compelling, and the funny thing is, as I went into it, the characters that I thought I would really enjoy writing flip-flopped entirely, and I really got into writing a couple of the ones that at first I wouldn't have thought that of, so I, you know, I had a fun time doing the book, and to me it's a shame that it just didn't catch on. Who was your favorite other to write? Because you mentioned it kind of flip-flopped from what you would have expected, but who was your favorite? Uh, I found Vostok to be such a tragic character that I really liked him a great deal. And obviously, the original Vostok had died, um, but there was a scene that Jeff wrote, and, and I found this to be such a compelling scene, and where um, Vostok shows up in front of the others, Aquaman and the others. And he has not seen them for years. And they say, well, what, where have you been? What have you What have you been doing? Basically, he just says, well, I've been on the moon. And they said, well, what are you doing there? He says, waiting for you to call. And I, I just thought that you had this character who was such a loner. And I just thought that was a beautiful line and a beautiful scene, the way it was constructed. And I found that so compelling in a character to say, that someone who was basically engineered to be a deep space cosmonaut and live alone was just waiting for his friends to call, and they ignored him. I thought that was sad. I thought it was tragic, and that, to me, is what makes for a compelling character. I think that actually definitely comes across in the way you wrote him, because I definitely felt like he was the one that was the most interesting. And, oh, and again, I, I thought you, you did a, a really good job with that character. And the idea of there being the different versions of him, I thought was really a, an awesome concept. Well, yeah, and part of it is, as I said earlier, Jeff had um, killed the character. And I was when I was starting to lay out the series in terms of what I would do with it, I just thought, wow, you know, wow, Jeff, you just, man, that's a great story. But boy, you talk about taking away future possibilities. And I, as I gave it some more thought, 
and I look at Vostok's origin and what they wanted him, when I say they, the Russians, wanted him to be, uh, and, and the fact that Jeff alluded to the idea that he was very much structured to be that deep space cosmonaut, that to me opened the door for genetic engineering, which opened the door to the potential of having another one. And again, I just thought the character was too good to let go. Final two questions. Uh, yeah. they're, they're kind of related. Uh, one is, what is your proudest accomplishment as a comics professional? And the second is, what books would you like to write or draw that you haven't already? Ooh. Um, proudest accomplishment, I think, is uh, in some ways, this might seem a little bit like a cop-out, but it's not meant to be at all. It really isn't. And it is, you know, I've been doing this a long time, and it's been very gratifying to have had a career this long, see all the changes in the industry. Um, when I got in and was the punk kid, uh, to get to know so many guys whose work I respected and cherished and that were older than me, and they've moved on and in many cases passed away, and to kind of be able to ride with the industry this long and continue to be able to work and do the work I want to do to me that's probably the thing I'm proudest of right there that I mean it has been a long time and it's been a fun time and I like to think I'm still doing the stuff I want to do the way I want to do it so that's a lot of it uh, then I'm sorry what was the second part of the question uh, what books would you like to write or draw that you haven't already and I guess that oh, also yeah. extends uh, to characters I think you know, it's a, it's a little different. I've done Batman stuff here and there, and I always like to draw Batman. So I'd like to do a few issues of Batman sometime again. Flash, to me, is a very visual character. Green Lantern. I mean, all those characters have a visual appeal to them, and I've never gotten to spend a really significant amount of time on them uh, where you build up what I call the visual library. And to me, the visual library is this, and that is when fans think about a character, they think about that artist version of that character specifically. Um, something like that. I actually have to say that um, when I uh, when I started buying DC Comics, you were the Superman illustrator, and so when I close my eyes and think of Superman, you, yours is the Superman I see, and I think a lot of people feel the same way. Well, thanks. And, but that's the kind of thing I mean. And I, So you I, are uh, my visual library. Okay, well... But I, and I appreciate that. And that, I think, is, again, I'll get back to what I said earlier. I think part of the problem with comics now is we don't allow for that. And we have too many books that switch creative teams too fast, or they have too many artists on them, and they don't have that identifier that I think is really good in the marketplace. And I don't know that it necessarily sells more comics but it certainly becomes part of the brand, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I, I really think, you know, if you think of Jack Kirby's Fantastic Four, 100 plus issues, I mean, that's an incredible visual statement. That is a visual library. And for me, as a reader, that was tremendously important. And I think that is something we really miss in comics today. I, I'm going to sneakily add in one last question because it kind of fits. Uh, outside outside of the world of comics, what have you been the biggest influences on your writing and art? Ooh, uh, that changes, and and it changes because you don't always look 
at the same things. I mean, ideally, I read different books and source different materials at this age than I did when I was, say, 22. And so I think that often changes. I know artistically, I see things differently now than I did as a 22-year-old. And so I look at things differently, and if you look at things differently, you perceive them differently, you take them in and appreciate them in a different way. And again, this might sound evasive, but it really isn't. And it is, whether it's current events, whether it's just reading different material and sourcing different things artistically, it all comes into play. And, I, you know, people will often say, who are your biggest influences? And I'll say, well, in a way, it's everything. Because the guy you read or whose work you look at and you don't like, so you stay away from it, is every bit as important as the guy whose stuff you do like. And, and you are that then. You kind of end up kind of sifting through all the information that's out there and picking what works for you. And that changes over time. Well, thank you very much for uh, spending some time with us today, Dan. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Have a good day. You too, Adam. All right. Bye-bye. Goodbye.